Hey everyone, welcome to Operations, the show where we look under the hood of companies in hypergrowth. My name is Sean Lane. I'm not sure anyone would ever mistake this podcast for a haven of economic expertise, but you don't need to be Adam Smith to recognize that the economic environment has shifted pretty dramatically in the past few weeks. Turn on the news, read a financial advice column, or just click refresh on LinkedIn and you'll be bombarded with stories of layoffs, venture capital investments drying up, and companies tightening their belts. It kind of feels like a big game of musical chairs and the music is coming to a halt and everyone is scrambling to find their seat. So what does it mean to be a hypergrowth company in the midst of a market shift like this? What types of conversations are happening in C-suites and boardrooms across the country right now? And how do CEOs think about the important themes like efficiency and productivity during this time? To figure that out and to get a CEO's perspective on it all, I spoke with Sherrod Verma. Sherrod is the co-founder and CEO of BoostUp, a revenue forecasting and intelligence platform. BoostUp has raised over $50 million since the company was founded in 2018, including a Series B of just shy of $30 million earlier this year. In our conversation, Sherrod and I talk about how CEOs are reacting to this new market environment, what it means to be financially disciplined, and how he believes that scarcity will drive resourcefulness during this time. To start, I asked Sherrod to take me through his perspective as a CEO on the time we're in and what it means to have an efficient organization. Let's uh, actually start with the need to talk about sales efficiency. Like what has changed in the last two months that every board and every CRO and literally every company is now talking about efficiency in general and sales, sales efficiency in particular. So the big thing is that obviously the markets have completely changed. Right? The public markets have crashed 70 80%. And as a result, the late stage private valuations have gotten compressed. As a result, a lot of the companies that raised outsized valuation rounds last year are now overvalued. And what that means is now the companies have to grow into that, into those valuations, right? So what they have to do is extend the runway and give themselves enough time to grow into those valuations, right? And in a capital constrained environment, it's hard to go out and raise a new round every 12 months, which had kind of become the culture and the expectation. And a lot of the company CEOs were essentially, you would be buying from the future, you'll be borrowing from the future, or you were over leveraged in various parts of the company. You would be taking on use cases or investing in products ahead of investing in business fundamentals, right? So, so that game has changed. Now it has shifted to, all right, you've got to get to strong business fundamentals. You've got to look deeply within your business. You have to get very disciplined about all your sub-businesses. You have to look at all your departments and all your spend. And essentially, you have to create a path towards efficiency or profitability, depending on the state of the company. There are a lot of metrics that, that are now, now certainly you know, more important than before. Essentially, the job of the CEO is to really architect that path. And in doing so, lead with conviction. I think what is most important in this is, is the role of the CEO, which changes from a master fundraiser to a master operator. So the CEOs, on one hand, they have to deal with boards and the same investors and boards who are encouraging hyper growth and over leveraged growth. 
have completely flipped and are encouraging, in some cases, cuts, layoffs, deep cuts, and so forth. But this is not the time to panic. This is not the time to look at efficiency in isolation. This is really the time to use the force function of market correction to inspect your business deeply and then identify what is the right path. And maybe the path includes making certain spend cuts or you know driving efficiency in certain areas, or maybe it does not. But it's not one size fit all. And there's a lot of FUD out there and, and a lot of venture investors are actually culpable for, for driving that. And it has resulted in a interesting relationship between various CEOs and various boards. I think the job of the leader is to really now have conviction more so than anything else. You've got to lead with conviction. You have to believe in your plan. You have to create your plan B, plan A. You have to create your plan B. You have to create the path. So it's not just about making certain things efficient or just you know sales efficient. You've got to look at your business in totality. You have to understand where, how you're doing relative to market. What is your market position? What's your fundability? What's your runway? Architect that path. And then sell that to the board, to the employees. Get Your job is to get everyone aligned on that and really lead. That is a narrative that I think is missing in today's conversation. I think the focus is a lot on sort of mathematical efficiency, which is important, and we'll get into that. But it's also about, okay, how do you lead in these uncertain times? Because people's lives are at stake. That's at least the way I think about it. In the midst of so much upheaval in the market and in tech companies specifically, Sherrod is a breath of fresh air. He's calm, cogent, and thoughtful about how he will react and the impact his reaction will have on his team. To recap, Sherrod's recommendation to CEOs is to be the architect of your plan, have conviction in your plan, and sell that plan to your board and your employees. I wanted to follow up on Sherrod's comment about getting back to business fundamentals. In recent weeks, I've been thinking back to the last time the markets shifted dramatically, which was the beginning of the pandemic. I was curious how Sherrod compared this shift to early 2020 and what business fundamentals now mean to him. And just to touch a little bit about the COVID and the the panic that hit immediately after COVID, we had similar sort of freezing effect, like capital just froze. And spending actually also froze for about a quarter, and a lot of companies went and just did you know deep cuts, only to come out and then essentially have to they have to go and rebuild those functions. So it's really important to be to be thoughtful. Now this time it's it's different. Inflation report just came out today. It's eight point four percent, which means we will see more interest rate hikes, and with every sort of hundred basis points, you see twenty to thirty percent cut in valuations. There will be more correction. I think there is prognosis about a recession down down the road. It may or may not happen, and I'm certainly not a predictor, but you've got to be prepared for that. So now when, it, when, it, when you think about, okay, how do you create sound business fundamentals and where do you even start and what does that even mean? Well, I think on the sales and marketing side, it is really about, okay, well, you know, how efficient is your sales and marketing, right? So what's your ratio of sales and marketing to new ARR? For every dollar that you're generating, how much are you spending? And if it's better than when, then you're good. If it's less than when, you got you got to think about your sales and marketing efficiency. It is also about your you know LTV to CAC, your lifetime value to your customer acquisition costs. Ultimately, that's important. If you've got a sticky customer base, right, that stays on with you for five seven years, then then you can potentially overspend to acquire that customer. But generally, those those ratios are I think anything above seven is is good. But obviously, these things depend on the stage of the company. 
early stages of these, these metrics and these ratios are never that great. The third one is, is your CAC payback period, which is kind of important, which is, you know, what, how long does it take you to recover the sales and marketing investment? So it's a ratio of your customer acquisition costs, your sales marketing customer success costs in a previous period to the new ARR generated in the current period, right? And if it's adjusted for gross margin. And if you do that, if it's under 12 months, it's obviously very good. If it's over 18 months, you got to start thinking about, well, is it really efficient? Where can you cut? And how can you sort of improve those numbers? But the most important metric, Sean, that has actually emerged, which was actually in the shadows last several years, is, is burn multiple. And burn multiple manages or reflects and measures your overall company efficiency. And so not just sales and marketing, but overall company efficiency. And that is a ratio of your net new ARR to your total operating cash burn, which includes R&D and G&A and sales and marketing customer success, like the totality, total operating cash burn. And, and the reason why that metric has become really important, at least for early mid-stage companies who are still in the R&D phase, who are still you know, building and refining the product, or even for late-stage companies that are looking to grow inorganically and acquire products, acquire companies, is it's become really important that your R&D investment is also efficient, meaning you're not taking on use cases and over-investing in them too early, right? I think experimenting in new use cases, experimenting in new products is obviously a judicious, wise thing to do. If you don't do that, then at some point you'll be out of business. But over-investing in R&D not fully understanding your ICP or not refining your ICP, right? All of that has has a reflection on your R&D and GNA uh, footprint. So this is a metric that looks at your overall burn multiple, like how much are you spending totally as a company relative to how much new ARR you're generating. And if you're doing more than 3X, which means for every dollar you make, you're spending $3, you're certainly in the red zone. If you're one or under, you're certainly you know, doing very well. Somewhere around two is okay. 1.5 to two is okay. And again, some of these ratios, they vary by stage. They vary by your category. And at the end of the day, the companies still have to grow, right? Growth is still very important, unless you're very late stage private or you're pre-IPO or you're, or you're a public company, in, in which case it's really about free cash flow. I mean, that is interesting. Like the market has really gone down to fundamentals and the valuation of the company, I mean, the valuation of any asset is okay, well, how much free cash flow is the whole asset going to generate in its lifetime? And what is the discounted value of that? And so that's why free cash flow for, for companies that are not growing at a very high rate is the metric, right? But for early stage, mid-stage companies that are, that are growing, burn multiple is an important metric now. I'm not a CEO, but I do not envy the position that you're in, right? Like I would have to imagine that that is a very tricky balance to strike right now between maybe conservative is not the right word, but being conservative in terms of how you think about that burn multiple while also still positioning yourself as a growth company and in that path that you're dictating and you you were talking about architecting for your team, you're architecting for them the fact that you are still a growth company. How do you think about that balance? Because I would have to imagine that's a, that's a tricky needle to thread. Yeah, that is a, that, that's an important question that CEOs, founders, leadership teams have to actually answer. In a very extreme case, you may have a business that is simply not sustainable, right? Your unit economics are simply not there. You just bought your way into it and you, were, you, know, you, had, you raised a lot of capital, which could have been the case. You know, if, if you think about Uber and Lyft, and if Lyft were starting today, they would have problems raising a lot of cash. 
I think negative unit economics businesses who sort of borrow from the future, who have no path to sustainability, you have to question, all right, do you pivot? Do you pivot? Like maybe maybe you go to a different market or maybe you, you know, go into a different business and go to a different product, right? So that's that's one extreme where you truly have to look at having some customers and having some traction, having some growth is no longer enough. Do you have a sustainable business is, is really the question. The second part is, all right, so now let's say, you know, you, you do have a product and business that is sustainable. Maybe it's over leveraged. When the party was going, you, you had to dance because if you, if you didn't, well, then you would not have been able to raise your next round or you would not have been able to raise your round at the comps that your future employees would have preferred, right? So, you know, founders and CEOs did have to play to that dance. Now the question is, okay, well, where do you invest and where do you cut? So you have to get very focused. Where you need to start is the following. You can't go from one to zero, right? You're over leveraged. You've built a large team. You've got, let's say, multiple product lines, all right? You can't go from that to zero. Maybe in certain cases, you do, right? You just cut a product line or two. You cut you know, parts of the businesses. You cut a region. So there's some, some areas which are clearly underperforming. You can do cold turkey. For the rest, you have to create continuity. Right. If you're very cold turkey, if you come under the pressure from the board and you go and just like massively lay off people without fully thinking through the implications, well, then you're going to have a lot of problems. Right. You're, you're going to have a morale problem. Your best people are going to leave. The market is going to catch wind that you're not really investing. Your customers will get fidgety. Your new prospects will ask you those questions. So you've got to be very sort of thoughtful about how you create that transition. And in creating that transition is the whole magic. Right. So. You've got to go, you have to take a look at, there are certain things, as I said, you can take a big, broad brush if they're clearly underperforming. There are other areas that you have to then institute financial discipline. So the goal is you have to teach every member of the organization or at least every functional leader how to be a lightweight CFO, right? How to actually manage your own P&L, how to be your own mini CEO or CFO in some sense. You know, if you've got a GM of a product line or if you have product managers, they have to think about, well, what is the ROI of the product? What is the CAC of the product? What is the CAC payback of the, of the product? What is the mar- TAM for that product? At what rate can we acquire the market, right? So you have to go department by department, marketing. Well, what is the efficiency of the, of the dollar that we're investing in marketing? What are all the programs we're running? Really, what is the ROI of every program we're running? Usually, you don't have, you know, when, when you're in capital surplus environment, you do not have that discipline. A lot of the decisions are made in terms of gut, and it's a good thing to do. And, you know, a lot of companies at your stage do it. So those kind of arguments, they, they dominate the meeting rooms or Zoom rooms in this case. And so a lot of suboptimal financial decisions or investment decisions are made. So you really have to go item by item, whether it's marketing, sales, customer success, spend, headcount, and mostly also strategy. What is under-indexed on is, look, scarcity actually drives resourcefulness. Mm, for sure. And that concept is well known for, let's say, the lean startup movement in early stage. But that that philosophy is true for any stage of the company, right? When you have scarcity is when you are actually forced to think and you're forced to think, you know, what really matters, what is really material versus what's not. If you listen closely, you can literally hear me furiously taking notes during my conversation with Sharad. According to him, we all have to learn to be our own mini CEOs. He rattled off a bunch of important financial metrics, but I think burn multiple is the one most worth revisiting. In case you missed it, burn multiple reflects your overall company efficiency. 
To calculate it, you want to measure the ratio of your net new ARR to your total company cash burn. And while the benchmark you're targeting might vary based on your company's maturity, Sherrod's broader point is about instituting the financial discipline to measure metrics like burn multiple, regardless of your stage. He's not all doom and gloom, though. Sherrod smartly points out that scarcity drives resourcefulness. Backed into a corner, people are going to make sure that every dollar of spend, every marketing program is actually going to have an impact. To me, that same thinking can be extended to the people on our teams. The efficacy or the level of productivity of our team members is also going to be further scrutinized during times like these. There's a saying that once you hit 500 people in your company, 80-90% of your problems are people problems, right? So people, people get in the way of people. You know, organizational structures are built around large, large set of people. When you have a larger set of people, you have to have you have your process structure, pods, and so forth. And it's all worth it if the market demands it. And if you you know, if you have a large market and you're in you're a growth company, you know, efficiency certainly slows down with more people, but your overall magnitude of success actually goes up. But you know, make no mistake, when companies start, you hire missionaries, right? You hire company builders, people who are invested in the company. And then over time, over time you you, you hire professionals and you hire mercenaries. And if you think about, you know, what is their purpose, their purpose and how they're measured in the market, they're measured by the size of the team that they actually built, size of the team that they actually managed. That is the single most common external metric that you can run on a person, on a leader, right? So what do these leaders do? They build up the team. And then a lot of these bridge roles are created. And those bridge roles can, can be great. Like, you know, they're a great glue. They can pull disparate parts of the organization together and elevate productivity, or they can slow things down. I believe that small groups of people who are unhindered by bureaucracy and a lot of glue roles and organizational hierarchy, right, when they work laterally, right, when when individuals can go and communicate laterally, you know, across various groups versus having to go up and then down, right, those are the groups that are most efficient. And so this this sort of scarcity can drive those those sort of decisions where you can break down some of the barriers, right? You can certainly let go of those political animals and really create a more cohesive culture. Quick timeout. Sharad used a term that I hadn't heard before, Brigital. So I looked it up. The term comes from a book called Brigital Nation. Using the country of India as an example, the book challenges the idea that you can overcome capacity constraints simply by throwing more capacity at the problem. Instead, the book offers an alternative where technology serves as a bridge to best leverage human capital, hence the term brigital. In listening more and more to Sherrod, I learned that now more than ever is not the time to be cutting back on the investments that will make your people most efficient, but rather doubling down on them instead. Things like sales enablement are critical investments right now to empower your high-performing team members. So, if sales enablement is not the place to cut, I wanted to learn from Sherrod what he thinks of as the ingredients that he looks at as a CEO to improve that burn multiple metric over time. Is it R&D? Is it marketing? Here's Sherrod. When it comes to R&D and overall, I think you, you really have to start, and even sales and marketing, you really have to start with the ICP and you have to narrow your ICP down. Right, so you might have an ICP that you have a very easy time selling to, and your sales could be very efficient. But if it's not 
if it's uh, taxing on your services and your customer success and your R&D, you've got to fine tune your ICP, right? So you've got to be efficient through and through, not just in sales and marketing. That is how you change your burn multiple. But once you've sort of narrowed that, you know, my view is that you really have to start with marketing. You really have to start with marketing. You have to understand, well, what is the rate at which you're generating your new pipeline? What is the quality of that pipeline? How are you progressing that pipeline? Because it is very costly to not have an efficient you know, marketing engine, whether it's, whether it's outbound marketing through BDRs or it's inbound marketing. Either way, you, you've got to have, you have to look deeply within your, your marketing, marketing spend. And often you have to think about all the channels that you're investing in. Okay, and what are the patterns? Right? What is the 80-20? Because there's always an 80-20. What are the channels that are overperforming other channels? So really, you've got to concentrate your spend and double down on what's working. And really, the starting, you know, you've got to make your marketing efficient. Right? That's one place. The second place is on the sales side, you likely have a team of overperformers and reps who are fully tenured and they're hitting the numbers. And you've got some who are sort of middle of the road. And then there are some who are new who are ramping. And so what you do is, number one, you, you've got to take care of your best reps, morale, equity refreshers. Like you've got to do what you got to do to really take care of your top performers. Then in terms of as, as you start to go towards sort of, sort of the middle performance performers, you need to have some conversations on, okay, well, and again, even there, I think the, you know, we've talked, we talk a lot about sort of coaching and enablement. It really becomes real now, which is you start time bounding coachability. You start time bounding the time to, you know, full tenure. So in other words, you go have conversations around, all right, okay, well, here are the gaps. So we've, here's the performance. Here are the gaps. Here's the root cause analysis of those gaps. Maybe you are weak on the process. Maybe you're weak on messaging. Right. We identify your weaknesses. We, we create a custom plan. But now it's a very closed loop feedback system, which means if you don't respond and if you're not directionally in, you know, showing progress week over week, month over month, then it's not worth investing in that individual going forward. Right. So I think that's how you deal with middle performers. And then the same same principle for new reps, which is the, the window to show adequacy and performance and path to performance is now shorter and it's tighter. In other words, no long, you know, I think gone are the days when you have a six month ramp time, black box, you do what you do. And after six months, we look at how much deals you've closed and right. So that that's gone. There is going to be more scrutiny, but the right way to sort of architect that scrutiny is, I mean, at least the way I look at this for, for new reps who are ramping or new reps is we really phase one is work ethic. Right. You know, if you're hired, do you are you showing the right work ethic? Are you doing the right things? Are you showing up? Are you building trust? Are you doing what you're saying? Are you saying what you're doing? Are you listening to the calls? Are you going through enablement exercises? Whatever your enablement plan is, are you showing the good work ethic? In the sort of the zero to one phase, you know, it starts with work ethic. Then it goes to all right, adaptation, right? So every new sales rep came from certain background, and those backgrounds could be very different from your company. And their orientation and their process awareness would be very different. So then the phase of adaptation begins. They have to adapt to your process, your buying cycle. They have to keenly understand your buyers. Third phase is coachability, which is either they naturally adopt or they are coachable, right? So it's, this is the phase where they're, you know, the reps are starting to get feedback, and either they're coachable or they're not, right? In, in, in start, you know, it becomes very, very evident within a few weeks. And finally, you know, you, you've got a few at bats. 
And then the question is, were you resourceful? Like, did you do everything you could, even though you're not fully enabled, right? But did you do everything you could? Were you internally resourceful, right? Did you show up? Did you show the salesmanship to, to get a few deals done? That's sort of your zero to one, zero to one phase, right? Then when you go from zero to one to few, well, now the question is, okay, can you show repeatability of winning? Can you show consistency, right? Can you manage a large portfolio of deals? Not just few deals that you go all out and win, but have you understood our process and our buying journey so well that you are repeatable across a large portfolio of, of deals? And then finally, you know, once you're in the land of many and you have sort of tenured, well, then the question is, well, have you peaked or are you still learning, right? Are you still capable of being humble and look at your losses, right, and really learn from them? And have you become, have you gone from being just an individual contributor to a team collaborator? Because at this point, you should be training. You should not be a lone wolf anymore, right? You yeah, should be going to teaching. You have, you have to graduate to teaching. And finally, are you, are you still engaged with the company or are you bored? Are you engaged or disengaged? Is it time for you to move on? So anyway, those are the three phases. That's, that's the way I look at it. Zero to one, one to few, few to many. I think Sharad has offered a really helpful framework here for the development or ramp of any new sales rep in your organization. If you're laser focused on rep productivity, this is the progression you're going to want to see. He starts with work ethic, looks for adaptation, coachability, wants to know if you're resourceful, can you perform, and then is your performance repeatable? And ultimately, do you stay engaged with the company? That to me is a pretty complete scorecard for the skills and the traits that you wanna see out of a rep. But we know we need more than just traits. We need metrics to guide us as well. In a very early episode of this show, Brett Queener, a former exec at Salesforce, told me a story about how Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff had an oversimplified way of determining if rep productivity was at the right level. If it was, great, you got to keep hiring. If it wasn't, you had to stop and figure out what was wrong. That was episode three, by the way. I asked Sherrod what metrics he uses today in this environment to make that same call. Your hiring has to become a lot more data-driven and disciplined, right? You can't just do a spreadsheet time analysis and uh, build quota capacity. Uh, I think those days are gone. Uh, you won't get those headcounts approved by your CFO. <laughs> and if you do, you're, you're going to have problems anyway. Discipline and being data-driven is very important. The metrics that, at least, you know, the way we look at it is, is pipe coverage, right? So what is the pipe coverage per rep? So you've got to look at every rep. What is the pipe coverage for every rep? Both early-stage pipe and late-stage pipe. And, the, you know, the, at least the coverage we look for is 4x coverage on the early stage and 2x coverage on the late stage. So pipe coverage is really important. And you do have a lot of, lot of good pipe. Well, you will hit your numbers, assuming that your enablement and your sales process is down. So pipeline really is the key. You don't need a very large army of sales reps if you've got a good pipeline, right? So really the, the idea is to focus on the pipeline, ensure that every rep you have on staff has, has very good coverage. Then the second thing is participation, which is are 70% of your reps hitting 70% of the quota or whatever that number is, 80% of the reps hitting 80% of the quota. But what you do, you do not, what you don't want is a very barbell-like, distribution where very, very few reps are, are hitting their quota, right? Because then the question becomes, if you go to the CEO, if eight, eight out of 10 reps are doing like 30, 50% of the quota, well, why aren't we doing anything to enable them first before adding on more headcount, right? So the over leverage investment doesn't sort of work anymore. So you have to invest in enablement of that. So quota participation becomes really important. 
your your ideal rep profile becomes really important, right? Because again, you know, back when, when the markets were crazy, you hired who you could hire. It was a candidate's market, right? So on one hand, you had the pressure to grow and show quota capacity to your existing and new board. On the other hand, the you know it was candidates' market, so you skipped a few steps, you, or you probably didn't define your you know ideal rep profile very well, and you ended up with some fat. So now you have to look at those eight out of ten reps who are under quota and and see if it merits replacing them or merits enabling them. The idea is to be very very data driven, and then finally, if you're fortunate enough, you know once you have great pipeline, get great pipeline coverage, then the next level of efficiency is is obviously your sales cycle and win rate which is on a per rep basis, what is the average contract value? What is your sales cycle? What is your win rate? And more importantly, is that improving over time or declining over time, right? Because again, I think you can do a lot. I mean, these are all the levers, right? You could add headcount or you can improve win rate or you can shorten your sales cycle and accelerate revenue. So these are all the levers that you have. So it's not just all always about sort of headcount optimization, but it's really invest, investment in, tools, enablement, and leadership and coaching to actually improve win rates, to shorten your sales cycle, to get higher contract values. And you'll still get, because revenue is revenue, plan is plan. The goal is to get to the revenue. Before we go, at the end of each show, we're going to ask each guest the same lightning round of questions. Ready? Here we go. Best book you've read in the last six months? I recently read All In, no, Amp It Up by Frank Slootman. I love that book. It's on my list. I haven't started it yet. I can say a little bit about Frank Slootman and that book. It really shows how you can change the game with just energy and intensity and focus. That's what Frank Slootman is. He goes into, he goes into meetings, he, he reviews plans and says, there's only one thing you can do, not three. <laughs> not three. There's only one thing you could do. What would you do? Right? Love That's that. one. And second is just like energy. I think when people have energy, great things can be done. Energy, intensity, asking hard questions, you know, hiring drivers versus passengers. So love, you know, love that book, learned a lot from Frank. I'll have to check that one out. All right. Normally I ask next your favorite part about working in ops. So I'll ask you what your favorite part about working with ops is. Well, I think what would a revenue organization be without ops, right? If you think about the role of ops is is scaling, right? You can't scale a large group of sales team without an ops function that is codifying behavior, codifying culture, codifying systems, codifying data, codifying process. Bringing endorsement. I love it. My personal view is that there will continue to be industries where enterprise selling is key and you need CROs who truly understand enterprise selling and a small percentage of your sellers will make the number. And that, that type of leadership is very right brain, very qualitative. But for vast majority, you are going to approach a very, not mathematical, but like operationally rigorous way. And I think revenue operations is not only strategic. At some point, revenue operations is going to be the CRO. Love that. Flip side, least favorite part about working with ops. Well, ops is not an easy function to sell to or work with. <laughs> They're constantly in the world of change. Change is the only constant. New CRO, new product line, new, new forecasting process, new CRM. So they live in, the const, you know, in a world of change, but we have a lot of empathy for the world of RevOps. It makes our life 
harder. But you know, our goal is to. I mean, they're our customers, so we we take it in our stride, and we try to bake those uncertainties and changes in volatility into our process, communication, and product, so we can take the market. Right. Yeah, so to yeah. us, those problems are actually, in some sense, while short term painful, are a long term opportunity. And for you, you have you have such a unique perspective, like getting to know that persona and cracking what makes that change palatable or what is the catalyst for that change. Like that's your that's your whole job, right? Like that's that's what problem that that boost up solves. So I think that's super interesting. All right, someone who impacted you getting to the job you have today. Well, I don't have one single person, but uh, I feel like my entire life, in some sense, has been in preparation. To be the leader of a of a company which can revolution, revolutionize the market with data and user experience and humanized insights, I feel like I've had a very checkered experience. I worked in B two C companies up until eight years ago. You know, my foray into SaaS was just eight years ago, and this is my second company in SaaS. I had very little parental schooling uh, when I was growing up. Like I was the youngest of the four and, you know, my parents left me to my own devices. So I have acquired these, these experiences. I've been very unstructured in my life. I have meandered my way. And I feel like all those experiences have actually made me who I am. And they have actually worked on, helped me to find a lot of my faculties. And so what I love about my job is it allows me to express myself fully right? Because I'm good at many, many things. I'm not great at one thing, but I'm good at many things. And it allows me to sort of express my faculty and build something that is meaningful. So lots of people have come. And by the way, there's positive side. And then there's, you know, people who have, who have flat out said that you're not going to make it. Right? And <laughs> they didn't believe they in me. Carry them with you too. And so I have a chip on my shoulder. And, and tactically, I want to prove them wrong. But, you know, largely, I want to have an impact in the world. But I'm human, right? And, and there's a little part of you that sort of gnaws at you, which is, okay, you know what? Those individuals said what they said, and it stays with you. So, you know, and that's, that's a little bit of driving force. I love that. A little bit of both there. All right, last one for you. One piece of advice for people who want to have your job someday. Yeah, self-confidence. So the net of it is CEOs are not born out of wombs. Great founders are also not born out of wombs. You can learn. You can learn this. But you only learn this when you have self-confidence. You have to believe in your innate capabilities. And that allows you to learn and that allows you to be bored and that allows you to command the room and that allows you to go and ask for help. That allows you to go hustle, right? If you constantly question yourself, and look, you can build confidence over time too. But if you constantly question yourself and and you're not sure and you haven't worked on your insecurities, then you can just, you'll just dream about it. But you will never be in the arena. You've got to step into the arena. And you have to be comfortable with failure and treat failure as a step in the way and, and learn. And, and I think a fundamental ingredient is that you have to have unshakable belief in who you are, regardless of what school you went to and what background you had and what you did and who said what. You have to have unshakable belief in yourself. And then you can do great things. Huge thanks to Sharad for joining us on this week's episode of Operations. If you liked what you heard, make sure you are subscribed to our show. A new episode comes out every other Friday. Also, don't forget to go back and listen to episode three that I mentioned with Brett Queener from Salesforce. It's one of the best ones we've ever done. 
Also, if you learned something from Sherrod or any of our episodes, leave us a review. Reviews help other folks to find our show. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, six star reviews only. All right, that's gonna do it for me. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.